Okay, uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for all the people who have spoken so far. I pray what I say today will add to it and that we will be edified and uplifted and go on our way rejoicing. We pray for everyone who is having uh, physical problems that is in the conference today. Eliminate them, wipe them out, and just fill us all with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're ready to go. We're going to land at three places in the scripture today. The first place we're going to land is Genesis chapter 22. I would invite you to turn there with me. The second place that we're going to land is Ephesians 5.18. You keep your thumb in there. And the final resting place is going to be in 2 Chronicles 28. Okay? So we're looking at Genesis chapter 22, and we're looking at 2 Chronicles 28, and we're looking at Ephesians 5.18. Is everybody with me, or... If you don't have your Bibles, uh, or if you have your Bible and the person next to you doesn't have it, just kind of thrust it embarrassingly in front of them so they can read the Scripture. Um, This is a very familiar passage. It's when Abraham's faith was put to the test. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God puts his people to the test occasionally. So many, there's a lot of popular mythology that goes around nowadays that, oh, God never tests us. Well, uh, he says over in Deuteronomy, he said, for 40 years you wandered through the wilderness and I tested you and I humbled you. So God puts his, uh, us to the test primarily so that he can humble us because there's nothing more important in God than the character quality of humility. So... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, which means laughter, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We'll talk about this later, but when you offer a burnt offering, it is a sign of total commitment to God. It's the individual believer offering himself to God, of course, In the sacrificial system, the believer doesn't offer himself into the point of death. He offers an animal as a substitute, but uh, that's what the significance of the burnt offering was. Uh, God wanted to know whether Abraham was totally committed to him. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Now here we start to see foreshadows of Calvary. We see Jesus riding in the donkey the same way that Abraham rode on a donkey. And he took two uh, of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. The mountains of Moriah, we know, uh, included the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Zion, and all the mountains around that area. So uh, historically, we believe that uh, Abraham offered... uh, Isaac on an altar, or built an altar very close to where Calvary was uh, uh, executed, where Christ was executed on Calvary. So we're in the same general vicinity. And uh, we're also picturing the Holy of Holies there with Christ as a sacrifice on the mercy seat with the two angels standing around him. So the two young men are there with him. 
And uh, the cross, of course, is pictured by the wood that he split for the, uh, making the fire for the altar. And in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand, indicating the wrath of God, and a knife which later on would turn into the Roman soldier's sword, and the two of them went on together. But I want to hone in on chapter 22, verse 5. That's the key verse I want to land on here. Because here, Abraham gives us a definition of worship. Many people I, I talk to uh, and I ask, why do you go on church on Sunday morning? Why? I go to worship God. Uh, well, what does that mean? And then they kind of fumble around and don't know what it means. But they know that they're there to worship God. That's their primary purpose on the Sunday morning. And we're going to see whether or not that's true. The question is, what is worship? And according to Abraham here, he says, Worship is sacrificing things that are most important to you. Worship is sacrificing things that are most important to you. Let's put it this way. There is no acceptable worship without sacrifice. No acceptable worship without sacrifice. Now, I want you to turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 5, 18. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 we had this in our church last Sunday. We were uh, preaching and teaching on it. Let's start reading at uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you work circumspectly, you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. To walk circumspectly means you're looking around you in every direction for danger. You're looking where you're stepping, where, who's following you, uh, who's on your right hand and who's on your left. When I was walking down trails in Vietnam, I walked circumspectly. I walked so I would see any booby traps. I walked so that I saw any snakes. And I met one one time in his abandoned crate. He... Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't have any shoes on when I met him, and he was in the, the team house where I, I lived. He came to visit me. Uh, so, uh, but I was walking circumspectly. I was walking very carefully. I was looking around to see what danger there is. And Paul says you need to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise men, redeeming the time because the days in which we live are evil. So in other words, we're buying back the time from the evil days. We're taking the time that we have and using it for righteous purposes. And then he says, he expands, he says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? The will of the Lord is that we do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. And that is a command, but it's a passive command. It's a command in the passive voice, which would loosely be translated, allow yourself to be controlled or filled with the Spirit. So there's something that you surrender, there's something that you give up, and it happens. Now, how can I tell you, when I go to the doctor's office, they put on the blood pressure cuff, and they can tell me how uh, often my heart's beating, what the pressure in the upper number is, and what the pressure in the lower number is, 
They can tell me everything about me by testing. We can do the same thing when we're deciding whether or not we or the congregation or our friends are walking by the Spirit. And in the original language, these are four parallel participles. Four parallel participles. They, uh, they are like uh, matching in a list. They're all equal. What's the first thing that we check out? The first thing we check out is whether or not the congregation is speaking to one another. And you need to put a line in your text after one another there because in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs belongs to the next participle. It doesn't belong to the speaking uh, participle. How do I know if you're out of fellowship with me? Well, when we pass each other in the street, you don't say hi. You don't shake my hand. You don't greet me. How do I know whether the congregation is in a fight with each other? Well, everybody comes to church and no one talks to each other. They just sit there. How do you know when your wife and you are not agreeing with something? Silence. Men learn very quickly when they get in an argument with their wife that the best technique to deal with it is silence. Don't say anything more. Don't dig your hole any deeper. Don't get out of fellowship with your wife. So whenever there's silence, where there's refusal to speak to one another, it is a sign positive that the spirit is not in control. When the congregation comes together and meets on a daily basis or at an event or at a meeting, when everybody's talking to the other, each other so that the, the master of ceremonies can't get anything under control, you know, he has to ring a bell or do something noisy to get everybody's attention, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. That means people are talking to each other, they're being open and having fellowship with other. Now, let's go to the second participle. The second participle is not silence, but it's also in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, anyone that has heard me sing knows that, that you would have an exact opposite reaction that Ken had when he heard uh, Jim's wife sing. If you hear me sing, you would think it was a cow having a calf. <laughs> and uh, so I was thinking about this passage of Scripture the other day, and I said, how am I supposed to obey this? And then I noticed that it was making melody in your heart, in your heart. So I said, how am I going to get it into my heart? I said, well, we live in the day of technology, do we not? So I took my headphones and I went over to the computer. I dialed up YouTube and there have hymns after hymns after hymns with the words on the screen so I don't have to hunt around in a hymn book. And I got, got into the spirit there and I was singing out loud and finally the door creaked, people open and my wife looked around the corner and said, what on earth is going on in here? That day when I opened my day by singing and making melody in my heart so that only the Lord and I could hear it was one of the best days I've ever had. Why? Because we know of at least two occasions in Scripture where singing and making melody chases the devil away. We have the case of Saul 
He was oppressed by a, a demonic spirit, an evil spirit, a spirit of depression. And when David started singing and picking and grinning on his harp, that's when the devil fled and he was okay. We have a later illustration of uh, that in uh, the, uh, the battle of King Jehoshaphat. Now, J. Vernon McGee, some of you may remember him, he used to say, the devil fell out of heaven today, he'd land in the choir loft. And uh, those of you who have been around musicians know what he's talking about. But uh, uh, the first thing he did when he went to battle, and he was outnumbered, but the first thing he said, put the choir in front. Put the choir in front. He had the musicians out marching around, playing their horns and singing and dancing and praising God, and that defeated the enemy. Again, a satanic attack rolled back for the enemy. When Paul and Silas were in prison at midnight, they'd been thoroughly beaten and abused, and then Paul looked at Silas, and Silas looked at Paul and said, you know any good songs? And they started singing, and all of a sudden there was an earthquake, and the, the doors swung open. So all I'm saying is that this is not an optional command. This is a sign of the Spirit's presence in your life and in the life of the congregation and in the life of the community. The third, the third uh, sign that you're uh, under the Spirit's control is, are you thankful? And the Bible is very clear that we are supposed to be thankful even in, when bad things happen. Are you thankful? Uh, we live in a culture that is not thankful anymore. We live in a culture that's a culture of entitlement where everybody deserve, thinks they deserve stuff rather than thanking God for what they have. I mean, I still can remember the time when I went to that little building out the corner of the property uh, on a regular basis instead of going to the bathroom and... Uh, and I'm thankful that I don't have to go outside in the wintertime to go, go potty, let's put it that way. So I'm thankful. And then last but not least, uh, verse 21, a submissive attitude towards one another. And then he illustrates that in three relationships, the wives and the husbands, the children and the parents and the servants and the masters. But all those things are signs of the Spirit's presence. There's a signs of the ability to worship the Lord. Now... To sum, or, uh, sum up or go to the meat of the message, I want us to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And you heard me say, I think, I think I said, I'm getting all confused at this conference. I talk too much at the, the fellowship tables and I forget what I say and what I said in the, in up front. But you have heard me say that the concept of the, ta uh, the tabernacle or temple goes through the scriptures. We started out our first message when we came for the conference. We started out our first message about the Garden of Eden, that the Garden of Eden was really uh, Yahweh's headquarters on planet Earth. This is where he was going to establish the worship center of God. Uh, the gold and the jewels were mentioned there because mankind, when he was reproducing and spreading was supposed to bring tribute back to the worship center in uh, the vicinity of uh, the Garden of Eden. And, uh, and so we have that worship center. And then later on, we find out during the uh, Abrahamic period that they were always going and worshiping at the terebinth trees. 
I used to read that when I was a young Christian and didn't know much about English language. I'd say, what on earth is a terebinth tree? Well, it's something like an oak tree, but the point of it is it's a Canaanite worship center. So Abraham blows into town with his entourage, and he says, where shall I set up a true altar to Yahweh? Oh, I got it. I'll set it up right next to the Canaanite worship center so they see that God's blessing me and not blessing them. And then they'll become believers in Yahweh the same as me. So we have this worship center, and the trees are symbolical or representative or a duplication or an imitation of the trees in the Garden of Eden. You go back to uh, um, Ezekiel 20, chapter 29, and it talks uh, voluminously about the trees in the Garden of Eden. So where, wherever you have a grove of trees, that's a potential worship center. Then you go out to the wilderness experience with Israel, and they have a tabernacle going on. And the tabernacle is the same as the Garden of Eden. It's got one entrance at the end. It's got three parts in the middle. It's got a high fence or a high wall around it, and no one can peek in or no one can climb over and get in there. Uh, then later on, the Solomon, of course, comes in and builds the temple of God that, that was in the heart of David. And in Second or uh, First First Kings one. 1 Kings 4 through 6, chapters 4 through 6, you have the temple of God described by, that uh, Solomon built, and he has flowers and animals and cherubim and everything scrawled on the, on the uh, walls, and uh, there is the same worship center going on. But then we come to the rebuilt temple. The temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and then it was rebuilt uh, with the return with Ezra and Nehemiah, remember that? And uh, what we have then is the rebuilt temple, and then it was remodified or rebuilt again or uh, expanded by Herod, Herod's temple. And the temple that our Lord dealt with or, or worshipped in and, and taught in was Herod's rebuilt temple. And he could say to us in John chapter 3, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up. And in a marvelous display of double entendre, double meaning, uh, the, uh, the Jews at that time, the Jewish leader who were blinded in their understanding, said, oh, he's talking about the temple. Well, it took 46 years to do, build this temple. How is he going to raise it up in three days? Well, Jesus wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. So there's another temple going down. Then we come to the Apostle Paul after the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and Paul looks at the, the Corinthian church of all people, and he says, you individually and you corporately are the temple of God. Why? Because the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, we have the... Uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and it has four equal measurements going on with it. And then you realize that those are the same spatial measurements as the holy of holies, so we don't have a temple anymore because the city is the temple. Okay, having said that, now, what I'm going to try and do is make a comparison between the temple of God in the Old Testament and the temple of God in the New Testament, namely us. 
you know, you and I are three parts as well. We're the outer court, we're the holy court place, and the holy of holies. Uh, we're the uh, spirit, soul, and body parts. And when you get to the uh, spirit part, then you're in the holy of holies. When you're in the soul part, then you're in the holy place. And when you're in the outer uh, court, then you're in the, the body place. So we want to look at uh, King Hezekiah's reforms. Now, King Hezekiah was a good king, good king. And uh, in fact, he was one of the few kings that was comparable to David in the story of kings, and he had some problems. Let's look at uh, chapter 29, verse 2. You would say to Hezekiah, how bad is it, Hezekiah? He said, well, he says, I'm going to become king the first uh, year, the first month. I'm going to assume my kingship on Rosh Hashanah the first new year. The kings always became king on the New Year's Day. And he says, and I'm going to gather the priests and we're going to open the, do the doors of the Lord's house again. Now, here's the thing. Whenever the doors of the Lord's house are open, then there's still time for repentance. Whenever the doors of the Lord's house are open, there's still time for repentance. But when you get to the Feast of Trumpets, if you don't repent, during the month of repentance, during the Feast of Trumpets, then you're going into the ten awesome days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. So those who repented before that were okay, and then those who did not report, uh, repent during that time were not okay. They had to go through half-tribulation, part of the tribulation. And then at the end of the story, if you never got your name in the temple as repentant before the Day of Atonement, the books were closed and your name was blotted out of the Book of Life for the next year. You were going to die the next year. And that's how they had it set up. So when we want to look at uh, the Feast of Trumpets here. He's starting out at the Feast of Trumpets. And what was the situation with the clergy? Well, it tells us here in verse 5. Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourself Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. There was no personal righteousness. There was no personal holiness by the ministers of God. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, and they have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs on him. Listen, we always turn away from God. God never turns away from us. We always turn, and that's good news because we can always turn around and go back. Now let's look at what else is going on in verse 7. They have, also, they have not only turned their backs on God, they have shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. There was no teaching of the word of God. The lamps have been put out, an indication that there was no revelation from God. There was no revelation from God. There was no witness for God. There was no prayers being offered, and there was no sacrifice of self. When you get to the burnt offerings, that's always the sacrifice of self. So, therefore, just as Day follows night, and night follows day. Therefore, the wrath of God fell upon Judah and Jerusalem 
and he was given them up to trouble, to astonishment, and to jeering as you see with your eyes. There was indeed, or indeed because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and wives are in captivity. There was a military defeat. There was premature death. There was loss of the next generation to the devil. Now, my sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Then the Levites arose, and it gives them the list name there, in verse 15, for the purpose of cleansing the house of the Lord. So the first thing, the first sacrifice I want us to see is the sacrifice of consecration. In other words, you have to purpose in your mind to clean up your act. You have to purpose in your mind to clean up the house of the Lord. That was what they did. And uh, then in verse 16, the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brick, brook Kidron where they could wash it away. Now, let me ask you this. What are the debris that are located in your temple and my temple? What are the debris that are there? Well, here's some. Failure to confess sins, failure to pray, failure to die to self, failure to pick up one's cross and follow, lust, lying, cheating, understanding, uh, unclean thoughts, filthy speech, ingratitude, indifference to responsibility. I used to joke about it, but it's not funny anymore. I used to come up to somebody that I knew, a friend, I said, you know what the problem is nowadays? There's too much abomination, and, and I had all kinds of nations after that. See, degradation, abomination, uh, it was another nation. And they'd say, is that right? I said, yeah. And then when you get outside the church, it gets worse. Think about that. Now, how do we worship God? He tells us here in the next chapter. Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. And they sacrificed seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. The first sacrifice that's acceptable to worship God is the sacrifice of blood. The sacrifice of blood. A blood sacrifice. Now, please understand that Jesus offered the blood sacrifice for our behalf. He stood in our place and offered himself as a blood sacrifice. We don't offer sacrifices anymore at all, but some are called to offer sacrifices as martyrs for the Christian faith. We're, we've been pretty much protected in this country from that sort of thing, but it may come in the future. We don't know. And that's why Paul said uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can dying, uh, how can just dying be a great gain? Well, the answer is, Paul was talking about dying as a martyr. That's great gain. That's rewardable. 
So some of us may be called upon to sacrifice, offer the sacrifice of blood. Some of us may not be. Now, look at verse 25. Then he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. We have here the second sacrifice of worship. The second sacrifice of worship is the sacrifice of submission to the word of God. Submission to the word of God. There is no greater problem than the lack of knowledge of the Word of God. I like to share this as an illustration of what's going on in our school system. I had a class of students that uh, one of the students noticed that my, I had a veteran's hat on. You saw me wear it a couple of days ago. And so she, she put in her mind that I was a veteran, and she she cogitated on the fact that I was old. So she raised her hand one time and said to me, Mr. Swigert, is it true that you fought at the Battle of Gettysburg? <laughs> and she was being serious. She was being serious. And like I said the other day in, in the, uh, the teaching of a story where we have a, a fence and, and two guards and a woman and a man, and nobody knows what it's alluding to. No one knows. We are suffering from ignorance of the commandments of God in this culture in which we live. So the second sacrifice, if you want to have a revival in your worship, is to submit yourself to the commandment of God. And then look at verse 27. Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offerings on the altar. As when the offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, the king of Israel. Now, <clears throat> I may have shared this story with you before. Excuse me while I take a drink of my pepper here. The, uh, the chicken and the hog, that's the Arkansas hog, gentleman in the back row, that's the Arkansas hog, uh, were taking a walk one day, and the chicken proposed that they find a way to feed the poor. And the hog said, well, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. What do you think we ought to cook for them? And the chicken said, well, how about bacon and eggs? And the hog said, wait a minute. He said, if we cook bacon and eggs for them, you're only involved, but I'm totally committed. Now, when you, come, when you come to the burnt offering, the burnt offering is the first of the five offerings. I've been fascinated by studying the Levitical offerings. I actually preached on them one time. I had a lady come up in Korea and say to me, I've been a Christian for 43 years, and I've never heard a sermon on Leviticus before. wonder why. Uh, and I also had another... Uh, holiness preachers say, uh, I asked him where do, would I go to find uh, good preaching material for holiness, and he didn't know, uh, but I suggested to him that he go into Leviticus 19, the center of the holiness code, and he'd find a lot of preaching material there. But anyhow, uh, be that as it may, 
uh, Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. He wanted them to understand that they were totally, he wanted God to understand that they were totally committed. Then in verse 28, you have another sacrifice. This is the sacrifice of praise. So all the congregation worshiped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All continued until the burnt offering was finished. So it's the sacrifice of praise. How many of you have lived a life of continual praise from other people? When you were a kid, did you get a lot of praise from your parents? When I was in the military, we used to have a saying that it took nine positive words to overcome one negative word. And the same continues. And uh, the men are at fault here. And the reason is I'm going to tell you why the men are at fault. Because I don't like to tell you something good about yourself. Because I'm in a mode of competition. If I say you're good, that means I'm bad. That's what, how I think. And I don't like to say I love your brother because that shows me that I'm not really strong, I'm really weak. And we have a uh, culture in this country where if you want to, if you love a, a brother in Christ, then the way that you express your love for him is you tease him. You give him some humor uh, and attack his personality or something he did stupid in one way, and that's how you show affection. That doesn't get you in the right mode for performing the sacrifice of praise. Now let's look at uh, verse 29. This is controversial. We've had three sacrifices so far. The first one is a sacrifice of blood, which we don't offer anymore unless we're martyrs. The second one is a sacrifice of submission to the word of God. The third sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise. And then I would like to suggest to you this sacrifice of bodily position. When they had finished offering the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshiped the king. Now, we don't bow in our culture. Have you ever seen people bowing to each other in church? It's really refreshing to go to the Orient and have everybody bowing to each other. And uh, uh, they learn it from the time they're a baby. I was talking to a lady one time. I walked up to her and I, I said, I'm the Moksanim, which means I'm the preacher. They have a title. Uh, everybody has a title in the Orient. And she was holding her baby like this on her arm, and she got, took behind the head like this, and she said, tell the Moksanim you're not happy to meet him. <laughs> she was training the child from the time she was a little he was a little baby to bow to someone higher in social rank than she was. And what I suggest to you is we have a Marlboro man form of Christianity. That means we're individualistic. We don't submit to each other. The, the, the passage of Scripture in Ephesians 5.18 said you need to submit to one another. Well, that means giving due respect to one another. We have this marvelous custom, uh, and uh, my children are still trying to get used to it. Uh, they don't do it. because they, they haven't even heard about it. I mean, they, they can't t tolerate it. We have several Korean couples in our community. And 
I'm the oldest Korean man. I'm a Korean man because I'm married to a Korean woman. So around New Year's Day, they bring their kids by, and they all prostrate themselves in front of me and bow down to the senior member of the family. Of course, I give them some money for doing that, <laughs> which, which is all right in the culture. But think of what they're doing there. Think of what they're doing. They are trying to teach them family respect for age. Age and wisdom go together. And uh, they're trying to teach them to respect their elders and to respect their older relatives. So there is something to be said for a body position. Uh, they, verse 30, they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Now let's look at one more. Everybody grab hold of your checkbooks because this is a sacrifice of treasure. Then Hezekiah answered and said, now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of God. These are optional offerings. These are voluntary offerings. These are not mandated offerings. Uh, so the congregation brought in sacrifices and thanks offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart burnt, burnt offerings. So not everybody was willing. Not everyone wanted to present themselves as, as a living sacrifice to God. They were sacrificing their treasure voluntarily, thanking God for what he had done for them in addition to saving them and beyond. Then uh, let's look at this second half here, the sacrifice of treasure, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. You know what the biggest sin in the world is, according to Romans chapter 1? Thanklessness. Thanklessness. They, they knew about God, everything about God, and they saw everything that he had done for them, and they were thankless. And that's a mark of unbelief. That's a mark of disobedience. That's a mark of rebellion against God. Then in verse 34, uh-oh, the priests were too few. They didn't get enough guys on, on board, so they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves, for the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. This is the sacrifice of service. In other words, there were people assigned duties. There weren't enough to get the job done, so everybody, as we would say, jumped in and helped. This is the sacrifice of service. And that's, that's a very, very important uh, facet in the congregation. Uh, every Sunday morning, I end up teaching in my class, and without exception almost, the IT man has to come in and help me set up the computer because someone messed it up earlier, or they put the wrong configuration in the teaching. That person that straightens my computer out is more valuable to me than the person that cooks the meal later on in the day, really. And so there's so many opportunities for service as long as we don't devalue the littleness of our service. Don't say, oh, it's just a small thing I'm doing. No, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. It's important for the functioning of the body. And then the last but not least the sacrifice of then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place 
so suddenly. Sacrifice of the fruit of the lips, the joy, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, the fruit of the lips and the sharing in joy. So I think if we look down through those seven or eight sacrifices, you will see how what happened when Hezekiah cleaned out the temple and got it prepared for worship again. And then what's the high point of it all? The high point is in the next chapter, and that is the celebration of the Passover meal. Uh, Let's look over there a minute. Verse 13, Now many people, a very great congregation, assembled at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. Feast of Faithfulness. Paul said, eliminate the leaven from the feast that we celebrate in the church. And then there was a problem for the multitude in verse 18 of people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Sebulon, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was committed. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone. The goodness of God overrules the sinfulness of man. The goodness of God in this place overrules the sinfulness of man. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people, healing from the effects of sin because they were celebrating the Passover. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept a feast of unleavened bread for seven days with great gladness, and the priests and the Levites praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanying them by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord, and they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering feast offerings and making confession to the Lord their God. There was a city one time called Jericho. It was the, the cultural center of the promised land. It was a representative city. It was the main obstacle to the children of Israel conquering the land. It had to be taken down. And what was the technique that God used? He had the Levites march in advance of the congregation one time around. Then second day, second time around, third day, the third time around, and on and on to the seventh day. And on the seventh day, seven times around. Seven times seven equals 49 plus one equals the year of Jubilee. So the cycle of the events in the book of Scripture that we're talking about, talks about taking down the Canaanite culture by marching around, praising the Lord, and worshiping him. And that's a model for us, that there were seven Sabbath years to be celebrated before the year of Jubilee. Lo and behold, when you go to the book of Revelation, you have seven times seven as well. And then you have the millennial kingdom, the year of Jubilee, when everybody takes back what they lost in their inheritance in the earth. All right. So what is my conclusion here? I want you to be able to go to the Old Testament, 
bricks and stone and apply it to your own personal life and your activities on a worship basis, on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, and a yearly basis. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the stimulating thinking that we had with this passage. I pray that we will get into it and practice what we preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.